0: In Wisconsin specifically, there's a law that said students have the right to be protected if they are gay, and they violated that.
1: I'm Kate Lundquist, and I love to celebrate humanity and unique perspectives from all walks of life. Listen in, learn, and grow as my friends and I share about our rides on life's crazy roller coaster. Welcome to Kate Has Me Meet. Oh, today you guys are in for such a treat. It's um, tough to listen to. uh, So be aware of that. But also know that I had one of my kids listen along as I did the editing and he was absolutely riveted. This is a case and a story that has received national attention. A young homosexual who was beaten and tormented by his classmates is suing his school district for failing to protect him. I admit to getting a little emotional editing this podcast today because, I don't know, And since even since having this interview, we've continued to get to know Jamie and now his husband and children. And I just, I'm so sad that this story has happened, but I am so hopeful for everything that Jamie has done to uh, help prevent this from ever happening to any other children people, students, ever again. Um, He's so, so inspirational, and it's an honor to introduce you to him today. So, here's Jamie. All right, we've got Jamie Nabuzny here. I am so excited to see you, and you are my, one of my newer friends, I would say. Like, we met at Met at a city council meeting, and basically, the way that I meet friends as a new person in town, I see people or hear people that sound cool, and then I say, Hey, I want to know you. So then I end up in people's inboxes just saying, Hi, and we've had two friendship dates, <laughs> and now we're taking it to the next level, getting our families together soon. Absolutely, <laughs> be awesome. So one of the things when we connected the first time, you mentioned that there was a movie about your life and then that just opened up a whole can of worms. You know, of course, then I went home and Googled you. I probably should have done that first before before meeting with you. At least we were in a public place. But um, no, I was fascinated by your story and I am really excited to just share it with the people that listen in on my little corner of the world. So I don't know. What would you like to start? Tell us about who you are.
0: Absolutely. So my name is Jamie Nabuzny, um, live here in Brooklyn park with you. Um, so I can kind of currently my, um, I'm married, my husband and I have adopted four kids through foster care, um, over the last, uh, five years. So we've had, uh, our youngest two five years and our older two, um, for four years and they're all biological brothers. Um, but I think my story goes m- much further. Um, I came out at a very young age and got bullied because of it. Um, probably even before I'd come out, I was bullied because um, I didn't act like other boys. And um, that bullying uh, kind of led me on a journey. That is why there's a movie about my life. So would you like me to just dive into that?
1: <laughs> I would love it. I mean, and because you've ended up traveling the country telling your story. So this is Probably something that is, yeah, easy for you to do. So yes, go ahead.
0: Absolutely. So um, for me, I think I hadn't come out yet officially, but the bullying really started in sixth grade. I I entered middle school. It's a tough time for most kids, and um, I mean, I, I probably got picked on for a variety of different reasons. I was also shy. I was very smart. I raised my hand in class when other kids did not. Um, but I also didn't always act like other boys. I didn't talk about girls. I didn't have posters of Cindy Crawford in my locker. Um, and so kids started calling me names like faggot and queer. And, um, one of the things that I didn't do was respond to that. I ignored it. That's what I was supposed to do, right? That's what the school handbook told me, which is what I consulted. I mean, just ignore it, report it. Um, But I think because of that response, most kids probably would have responded much more aggressively and said, I'm not gay or, you know, done something to prove that they weren't gay. Um, And so in some sense, I think they thought that that was some kind of confirmation. And I was I mean, I I was gay. Um, And then when the bullying started, I think I felt very confident that the school would handle it, that they would address it, that they would punish these kids, that it would stop. And I learned very quickly that that wasn't the case. Um, I think in the very beginning, they kind of did talk to the kids and maybe it stopped for a day or two, but it would start back up again. And this um, just kind of pattern kept continuing where I kept going in and reporting it. And they kept saying, oh, we'll take care of it. And then they didn't. And so that was most of sixth grade. Um, And I would say it was mostly verbal, maybe some pushing and that sort of thing. Um, But it definitely escalated in seventh grade. And so um, I remember uh, being in seventh grade and having um, you know, kids started like pushing me down and knocking the books out of my hands, spitting on me. Um, and I thought, okay, now it's getting physical. This is, it's also very much sexual harassment which is something that we learned all about in seventh grade health class. They have to address this. They certainly have to do something about this. And that was the very first time that I um, got a response other than we'll handle it. I actually met with the principal and was told that boys will be boys. And if I was going to be openly gay, I had to expect those kind of things to happen. And so um, that was really upsetting. And my, um, my parents were in that meeting with me. And so they heard that same message. And um, that was the very first time that I attempted to kill myself because I really thought that nothing was going to change that the school wasn't gonna address the bullying, that I couldn't handle it anymore. I was at the end of my rope. Um, And so I ended up attempting to kill myself. I ended up in the hospital. Um, And when I came out for a brief time, my parents tried sending me to a Catholic school, which quite honestly was much better. Um, I didn't have any harassment. I didn't, um, you know, it was a very small school. Everybody was really polite to me, but my parents also couldn't afford the school. Um, My parents didn't have a lot of money. We lived with my grandfather, we were taking care of him. Um, My dad worked construction and, you know, I think that the school would have been more understanding if they'd said something, but my parents were too proud. So eventually they said, you know, we can't afford this. The bills keep stacking up. We need to send you back to a public school. And so they had a meeting and said, hey, we need to make sure that you guys are gonna protect Jamie and things will be good. Um, and everybody agreed, oh yeah, he'll be fine. And it just started back up again um, immediately. And uh, the last incident that happened to me in eighth grade was I got pushed to the ground by um, a couple of kids and they acted out like they were raping me in front of the whole class. And um, I immediately ran into the, to the principal's office and um, got the same response again and left and tried again to kill myself. And um, that was at the end of the year. So it kind of took me into the summer and then high school was gonna start. So new school, new principal, I was hopeful that things would be different. But um, within three weeks of being in school, um, I got pushed into a urinal and urinated on by some kids. And I immediately went wet. Smelling like urine to the office, thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable." They're going to have to do something at this point. And um, the secretary, you know, let the principal know what happened, and I was told to go home and change my clothes. And I assumed that 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 there would be more to it. And I went back to school, and nothing was done. Nothing was addressed. It was like it didn't even happen. And I sort of knew that high school was not going to be any different. And I think that one of the things that I started doing was I stopped. I stopped believing that anybody would help. And my parents really stepped up and said, they were my biggest advocates, um, both at home, just helping me emotionally, but then also at school. I remember many days going home and going to my room, slamming the door and just crying. And my mom would come in and try to comfort me. And she, one of the things that she was really good at was telling me all the time, this is not about you, Jamie. This is about these kids. This is about the, the adults in the school who are not doing their job to protect you. There's nothing wrong with you. This is about them, which was really helpful to, um, to hear. Um, but it just continued. And I, I had a couple more suicide attempts. And then um, in the middle of my 11th grade year, um, I was in a um, hallway in the school. And typically what I would do when I got to school is I'd get all of the books for half of my day. And that would make me avoid going to the locker. So I could get all of my books, put them in my backpack, and then I could go from class to class as quick as possible to avoid being around people. And you know that would keep me safe. And then um, that morning though, I'd gotten my books, I was studying and I, had, I was sitting cross-legged on the floor. I had a book in my hand. I was reading one of my textbooks. And a kid came up and kicked that book out of my hand. And he said, get up and fight faggot. And I said, I'm not gonna fight you, leave me alone. And so then I got up to go and try to pick up the book and he started kicking me and he continued to kick me and kick me. And I honestly don't remember, um, but I passed out. And then I was taken by ambulance to the hospital. And, um, I had to have surgery, um, because of the beating that I suffered. And so I had a lot of internal damage. I had bleeding and bruising. My spleen had ruptured. My stomach was torn. Um, and I almost died. I mean, it was a very, very serious thing. And I knew when I left that day or when I knew when I left the hospital after I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, um, that I couldn't go back to school that they were going to kill me. And the school was not protecting me. Um, my, you know, assistant principal that I had who was in charge of discipline would, you know, say things like, oh, Jamie's probably hitting on them. That's why they're doing this to him. And it's kind of blaming the victim, which is a very common thing that happens in not just bullying in school, but in life, right? I mean, people want to blame victims of rape because of what they were wearing or victims of racial profiling because of how they didn't or did act in a situation. It doesn't matter. You're blaming the victim for the actions of somebody who's perpetrating a crime. Right. Um, And that was really tough. And so I, you know, got out of the hospital and once I was well enough, I I ran away because I knew I had to go to school. If I stayed, my parents were going to get legally, they, you know, you have to send your kid to school, you get in trouble. And so um, I made it to the twin cities and tried to find, you know, a safe place to be, but when you're at that point, I was 17, and um, it's a tough place to be on the streets at 17, especially when you're from a small town. I was not at all street wise, I had no idea <laughs> how to navigate things, how to take a bus. I mean, I that was the first time I'd seen an escalator that tells you how small town I grew up, right? Um,
1: Wisconsin, right,
0: yeah, rural Wisconsin. So, um, but eventually, my parents caught up with me. Um, I was actually staying with a young woman who was part was in a program um, for homeless teens and she'd gotten an apartment through this program and the social worker had come to visit her and saw me and then went back to the office and saw a missing poster that I was on and she ended up calling this young lady and said I'm going to be calling Jamie's parents and letting him know that I saw him there because I have to do that let Jamie know and he can leave if he wants or if he wants to see his parents, he can stay, Um, which was really great because she said, "I, you know, when I finally did meet with her, she said, I had no idea what you were running from, whether it was your parents were abusive or what was going on. And so, um, but eventually she, um, I agreed to meet with my parents at their office on the condition that I would, no matter what happened, I wouldn't, you know, I I was not going to go home. And um, my parents agreed, like, We need to let him stay in the cities because it's the only safe place um, for him and we can't protect him. And so that kind of led to a series of things where I ended up going to a local church um, that was a LGBT church and saying, help, (laughs) I'm 17, I can't get a job, I don't know where to go, Um, and one of the deacons at the church and his um, partner said, "Um, we kind of have a crazy situation, if you're comfortable with it, you can come stay with us, so he and his um, partner lived with a lesbian couple, and I think it was like three dogs and two cats, and, um, you know, all in this big house um, in a, in a, pretty far out suburbs. It was Hastings, um, uh, Minnesota. And so, you know, I, my parents allowed me to move in there and I I started back in school and, um, but quickly realized I wasn't, I, I was finally diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder because I couldn't be in classrooms unless I was sitting in the back corner. And the entire time I had a really hard time paying attention because I felt my whole body was tense. I felt I was ready for somebody to hit me, ready for something to hit me, ready for somebody to say something. And it was super hard for me as a very rational person to say, nobody knows who I am. Nobody's bothering me. Why am I having a hard time being in classrooms? Why am I having a hard time being in hallways? I was terrified to use any kind of bathroom that wasn't a single stall bathroom. I couldn't be on a public bus. It was scary to be on a bus for me because I couldn't control my surroundings. I didn't know I'd always go as far back as I could so I could see everybody. Um, and that, uh, you know, kind of led to me um, meeting with somebody and talking about what was going on and, and um, being told, like, what happened to you was not just wrong, it was illegal. And the school had an obligation to protect you regardless of your sexual orientation. But in Wisconsin specifically, there's a law that said students have the right to be protected if they are gay, and they violated that. And so this was a, a woman who worked at the, um, at the time it was called the Gay and Lesbian Community Action Council. Now it's called Outfront Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And she found me a lawyer. And that lawyer decided to take my case and then filed both a federal and a state um, lawsuit against my school. Um, Both were thrown out pretty much without um, even hearing my case. Um, And a lot of the reason was lack of precedent, like, and it's one of those weird things, Well, how do you have a precedent if you, can't bring precedent, like, (laughs) um, but then eventually she couldn't afford to continue my case. And so a a national organization called um, Lambda Legal got involved. They are the national law firm for LGBT issues, as well as um, people living with HIV and AIDS. They've done a lot of legal work on that front as well. And they took on my case and we went, they decided to to abandon the state claims and to go with the federal claims and go to the federal appellate level, one step below the Supreme Court wow. to um, get the right to go to a trial. And so we um, we had a court date set and there was a lot of, um, this is kind of an interesting story, but there was a lot of, my lawyers were a little concerned because we argued for um, a different venue for the, the trial and so did the other side. So. Originally, the trial was going to be in Duluth, Minnesota, and they, they um, wanted it to be um, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And we had argued that we wanted it in Madison, hoping to get a more liberal jury pool. Um, but ultimately, the the lawyer was or the judge was the same judge who threw my case out to begin with. So now he's having to hear the case probably not very happy about it so we ended up in Eau Claire, which is where they um wanted to be and so um we also were going on the monday of the week of thanksgiving so the judge made it clear on monday morning that it's in everybody's best interest that we push through this trial and so we can get out of there by thanksgiving so we're like so we had 10 hour days in the courtroom which is unheard of for a a court day and we had very limited breaks for bathroom and for um, food, lunches and that sort of thing just to get through this. But then on top of that, um i remember going into the jury selection part of it and one of the things that was really kind of funny was all the people were there and they had come in their hunting gear because they were waiting to get dismissed so they could go hunting right and it was funny because my lawyers were like well we don't want any of them we you know just stereotypically they're probably not going to be on our side so when the judge asked if any of them had any problems with anything that you know all this list of things that both sides talked about um, all of the people in hunting gear seemed to leave. And I don't know if they left because they were homophobic or because they just wanted to go hunting, but either way <laughs> um, they left. But we went into the trial and we had witness after witness after witness on our side um, talking about what had happened, that it was exactly what we said. So um, for example, the, the school secretaries had testified that um, they were very familiar with my parents but then when they were asked why they said, oh, it was because of his brothers. It wasn't because of Jamie. Um, I mean, they would try to get around things, but like they, you know, the principal denied knowing my parents. So now all of a sudden the secretary is saying, oh, they met with her multiple times, but tried to cover it up by saying it was for his brothers, not for him. Um, but we also had my guidance counselor. Um, we had teachers testify for us that um, what happened, it happened. and um, And then all of my school records, um, we found out, I think it was probably a couple months before trial that um, when we were trying to gather evidence that um, my records had been destroyed. And when they said, well, that's, you know, you, ha- you were legally obligated to have those records X amount of years. What do you mean they were destroyed? Well, it turns out that the one of my um, principals, the assistant principal told the lawyer, like, kind of like, hey, guy, don't worry about these records. I took them home and burnt them in my son. And by law, he, as a lawyer, has to tell the judge that. Like he, you can't tell your lawyer that, that you've destroyed evidence and then not expect him to tell the judge. The judge told him, um, but what they didn't know is that we had all of my records um, photocopied before we filed suit against the school by my guidance counselor. She went in and got my records, made copies of everything and took them home with her. She knew, she said in the past, the school had destroyed records and she knew that they would do the same thing. So there was so much overwhelming evidence that, um, you know, the jury, we ended the trial and the only real defense they had was they didn't know me, they didn't know that I was gay and they didn't know that I was being harassed so they can't be found not guilty. Well, every piece of evidence, every witness said, you're lying, right? And so um, the trial concluded and um, the jury went into deliberations and we went back to the hotel to have dinner. And this was after the second day. And so we're like, okay, you know, that was really quick. But we got back to the hotel, we ordered dinner, and we got called back because the jury had already made the decision. And my lawyers prepared us and they said, this is either really good or really bad. Juries do not make unanimous decisions that quickly without it being you know unanimously you know that you're the guilty to the, the principals in the school or not guilty like one or the other has happened and so we didn't know what to expect and then he said do not respond emotionally do not cry do not yell because we still have to go to the damages phase and we don't want to show the judge or anybody else like strong emotion. Well, what was really funny is the, um, the jury read the verdict and they found the three principals guilty of discrimination, the school district not guilty. Um, and the reason for that was because the school district did its job as far as it was a building and a set of rules. All of those things were done to protect me, but the three people in charge of making sure those rules were followed didn't. And it was the jury's under, like the jury said, we don't blame the district, we blame these three principals. Um, and so what's funny is I tried really hard not to respond and I look over and my lawyer is just crying. <laughs> he was so happy that um, that we had gotten a guilty verdict. And before we could even get to the next day of the trial, the, um, the the school called my lawyers and said, we want to settle. And the crazy part is that they kept increasing the amount of money because we'd asked for three things. Um, we'd asked for a public apology. We'd asked for the right for me to graduate in a private ceremony so my parents could see me graduate from high school. Um, and we'd asked for uh, my high school diploma to be issued to me. And those three things were too much for them. They refused to do them. And so they kept coming back with higher dollar amounts and cause they had no way of knowing what the jury would issue as far as they knew it was super quick they knew the testimony did not go well in their favor. Um, I mean, my ending thing ended up, my ending, the beating that I suffered last put me in the hospital and almost killed me. I mean, the jury could have come back and given me 12 million or 15 million. They had no way of knowing. And so in the end, um, the the we ended up settling for $900,000, um, plus they had to pay, I don't even remember, I think it was $240,000 in past medical bills um, that were paid for um, by insurance um, and and also the state of Wisconsin. So um, it was a big deal and it it made national news because it was the first time, and and it's weird, it's the first time ever that a school was held liable for not protecting a student from bullying. My case wasn't the first time that a gay student sued, it was the first time that any student said, I deserve to be safe. I wasn't safe and you violated my constitutional rights. So that was really the, the, it changed not just the law, but it changed the liability structure of schools. And so prior to my case, if a school got sued for anything, the school district was liable. Mm. The school district had to pay that. And what my case established was that individual principals are now held liable. So like a doctor has to have a special insurance policy or a dentist a principal now has to have a special policy. It's typically a policy that they have on their homeowners, like an extension of that, that sues them from professional or that protects them on a professional liability basis. Um, you know, But the reality is, is if they just do their job and <laughs> they won't get sued. And so a lot of principals that I've met said that it doesn't affect them at all because they, they, they're gonna do their job. They're gonna protect students. So in, in a nutshell, <laughs> um, that is kind of my story as far as um, what happened to me in school and then the case that came from that. Um, and then we can fast forward to 2010. So that was 1996 that my case ended, which is hard to believe, but that's 25 years ago um, this year. And so um, fast forward though, and in 2009 I was contacted by the Southern Poverty Law Center who wanted to make a movie about my experience. And I initially said no. And um, the reason for that is I just didn't want to go through all this again. I'd really put it behind me in a major way where I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I just wanted my life to go on. Um, and then the the I ended up on the phone talking to this woman about the making of the film and I got off the phone And um, me and Bo had been dating for, I think, about a year and a half at that point. And he said, who was that? Like, what was that about? And oddly enough, I'd never told him about my lawsuit. I never talked to him about what happened to me in school. I'd really done a pretty good job of just putting it behind me and wanting to move on with my life. And the reason for that was I got really tired of people thinking of me as the kid from Wisconsin who got beat up. And I just wanted to be Jamie, right? I wanted people to think of me differently. And, um, but I, so I explained to him, I was trying to explain to him and he's like, well, I knew all of that. And I'm like, how did you know all of that? He goes like, I Googled you when we first started dating. <laughs> so he just said, I assumed if you didn't want to talk about it, I wasn't going But then he shared with me his own story of growing up biracial in rural Minnesota, being bullied from as early as he can remember because of the color of his skin and because of the fact that he didn't act like other boys. And he really encouraged me. He said, Jamie, that movie could make a big difference in people's lives. I really think you should do this. So I reached out to my family and I said, hey, what do you think? And all of them said, yes, let's do this. It's, you know, they had to be interviewed too. They were gonna be back in the spotlight kind of, and they all didn't even hesitate. And so um, we started making the film and uh, it was completed in 2010, um, early summer. And then I went to um, Montgomery, Alabama, which is where the, the Southern, Law, Southern Poverty Law Center who made the film is located and saw it for the very first time. And they wanted me to wait until it was done. Um, Unfortunately, because of that, they say my name wrong throughout the entire film, but that's okay. (laughs) You know, The film was amazing and it told my story and made me feel differently about, I wasn't the kid from Wisconsin who got beat up. I was the one that stood up and said, this isn't okay. And I wanna do this to protect other kids. And it made me feel differently. and, And about the same time, Um, 2010 was when the media finally started paying attention to the fact that young LGBT people and non LGBT people all over the country were killing themselves because of how they were being treated in schools and nobody was paying attention to this before, but they started it started making the news and it became a big story in the in 2010 right as the film came out. And so then at the same time, I started getting requests from all over to speak all over the country. And so I wasn't doing anything in that space. At that point, I was actually working in banking and I decided I would take some time off, do some speaking, and then I eventually would go back. Well, I thought I'd go up a year doing speaking Um, and I I was almost doing it for five years. And I still, to some degree, do it. I just do it on a very limited basis. So that's, um, yeah, that's kind of my story. So (laughs)
1: Oh. what, what things changed at that school after the lawsuit were teachers or the principals held accountable? Were there additional trainings? Were there student groups being formed? Like what happened there?
0: None of the principals were held accountable or disciplined for the, um, for what happened to me. That being said, I do think there was a concerted effort to get rid of them. And so probably within a couple of years, all of them were gone. And I think that, um, I will say that I did receive an apology from one of them, um, the principal of my high school actually. Um, And it was really a a very heartfelt apology. He um, was contacted, People Magazine was gonna do an article about me called Growing Up Gay. And he said, they wanted to film me in the school that all this happened in. And I hadn't been back there since I was in high school and they reached out to the school and he was the principal and he agreed to let them do this. If me and him could talk privately and nothing he said to me would ever be published. And I was very nervous going into that thinking, why would you want that to be private? Like,
1: yeah,
0: almost worried he was going to, attack me or i you know i don't know what he was going to say and i sat down for this meeting terrified and he immediately started crying and said i am so sorry for everything that happened to you in this building when i was in charge i am responsible he said yes I had left my assistant principal in charge of discipline and I continually believed him when he said he was dealing with it, it was taken care of and I never followed up. And he said, that's on me a hundred percent and I'm so sorry for what's happened. And he really meant it. And he said, I don't want this to be published anywhere. I don't want to, to get some kind of redemption from this and make people say, oh, look at he, look what he did. I just need you to know that I'm sorry. And that really meant a lot to me. Um, the other two principles I've never heard from Mary um, Podlesny actually had a kind of a nervous breakdown the next year and left education at that point. Um, Unfortunately, she then went back to work at a college and teach teachers how to be great teachers. Um, The interesting part is that she couldn't use any textbook published after about 2000 because every one of them mentioned Nabuzny versus Podlesny as a case, referencing cases that have influenced um, education. And um, she retired, gosh, I think it was three years ago now. And um, I was the first person they brought back to the school that next year to speak at the school because I'd never been allowed to speak at that college because she was there. And Thomas Blauert went on to be the assistant principal in Superior, Wisconsin, and he retired in 2011. The fall of 2012, I was the first speaker they brought in that year to speak. And I heard you know, from everyone in both of those situations that they were the same people. They hadn't changed at all. They had very specific beliefs about how things should be. Both of them were very homophobic. Um, so nothing really happened as far as they, they went, but then there were changes. Um, there were more openly gay students that came out. And I think a lot of them had the courage to come out because they knew that they would be safe. Um, there were trainings, there were, um, there was, I, I can't remember what year, but there was a, a, a gay couple went to prom in my, in my high school, which I never could have imagined happening when I was there. Um, my niece actually, or my, excuse me, my cousin's kid, um, she ended up forming the first gay straight alliance in the school. Um, and so, you know, things have really changed and there were always good people there. And that's the thing that I I really was important for me to to tell people and and the documentary shows that with my, I had guidance counselors, I had teachers um, that were awesome and did everything they could to help and protect me. And so that didn't change, but I do think that um, they became more vocal. They became more of the people that um, they were speaking out about students' right to be safe. They were speaking out about LGBT issues. Um, and overall, I mean, now there's been in the last few years, there's even been transgender kids that have come out, um, and have had very few issues. And so that is amazing. I'm really happy to say that things have changed quite a bit in my hometown.
1: Good. Well, that, that's good. Um, what a price to pay though. I mean, I just, I'm thinking about middle school and even as a straight white female, how, how I was like paralyzed with fear many days to go. I I can't believe how much I hated it. I told my own middle school students when I was a teacher that even for a million dollars I wouldn't go back and redo it. I I mean, maybe I would, but it would be so different. It's just such a such a scary time of discovery and to have to really fear for your safety. That's that's just so sad and then to have that happen in high school. I I don't know. I, so here we are, kind of the next generation. Now you're married with children of your own. How are things different for your kids? Do they? I mean, obviously, we're just in a new generation. So for them, they've got a couple different things, mm-hmm. you know, a couple different labels, I guess, um, being, you know, having been adopted, having two dads, they are multiracial. Like, what does, what does that look like for them?
0: I would say that they have had very few issues with the fact that I, um, or that me and my husband have adopted them, surprisingly so, like more, it's been much better than we expected and their friends are totally accepting. Um, my son, my second um, oldest son has actually said that it makes dating a lot easier because girls thinks it's so cool that he has two dads. Um, but I do think they have faced issues because of their race and bullying and that um, I didn't expect. I honestly, I would hope that that wouldn't have happened but my um, two youngest sons were in elementary school in 2016 during the election. And I will never forget um, picking them up at school, we're driving home, um, both of them are in the back seat because they're in booster seats and um, I'm in the front, we're talking about how their day went And my seven-year-old Brandon said to me, dad, if Trump gets elected and we have to move to Mexico, will you come with us? And this is not a time to explain to a seven-year-old how citizenship works, how the fact that he was born in this country makes him a citizen. All he needed to know, especially as a kid who just recently got adopted and placed in our home, all he needed to hear was that wherever he goes, I will be there. I'm your dad. I'm gonna be there for you. I will take care of you. I will protect you. Um, But it really hit me hard that this is happening in their school that kids are saying this and it continued and we ended up having to go to the school and have a meeting with the school and say it was one particular kid whose dad was a pastor at a local church, um, a very, very conservative anti-gay I would say racist pastor, obviously um, whose kid brought that to school at whatever he learned at home and then was teasing my seven-year-old about the fact that he had two dads, the fact that he was um, Mexican and it, w- it got pretty bad. And eventually I was really proud of the school. Woodland Elementary um, here in Brooklyn Park did an amazing job and basically told this family that, if, that this is a school for all kids. Every kid in this community deserves to be here, has a place here. And if that is not something you're comfortable with, there are private school options where your beliefs can be upheld. It is not going to happen here. And things got drastically better, very quickly. Um, The school put their foot down and handled it, like I said, really, really well. Um, And, you know, I was ready for a fight. I was ready to deal, like fight the school and make them. And it didn't happen. Um, They did what they needed to do. The harassment stopped. Um, And if anything, it helped him get, a lot of the other kids started standing up for him. And, you know, that we're like, that's not cool that he got treated like that. And um, so it turned out okay. And so I think that it's 20 six years or 25 years since my case, probably 30 years since all of this started for me. And in some ways things are drastically different and in other ways they haven't changed at all. Middle school still sucks for everyone. (laughs) I don't think there's a lot of people that it doesn't suck for. I think even the kids who are doing the bullying and the kids who are popular are terrified of losing that. They're so insecure themselves. That's why they're harassing and bullying other kids. I don't think middle school is a great place for anyone. And, you know, like you, I wouldn't go back there for anything um, unless I could go back with the maturity that I have now. Maybe that would be exactly. <laughs> exactly. it's tough. And I think that, you know, we we have a lot of conversations around. I mean, this especially this last year around race, around um, privilege, around so many different things come up in conversations. And, I, you know, I, I do believe that I, I have one son. I do believe gets bullied and I don't know. I don't think he tells me. And I really hope it's not. I try to talk to them. Um, But like I said, some things have just not changed. And it really depends on where you're at. There are schools that I know are wonderful, safe, supportive places for all kids. And there are schools that are not supportive or safe for most kids, period. So,
1: Hmm. It's just, I don't know, it's so interesting thinking about your middle and high school experience, and now your own children are going through it. how scary that must be but like you said how that the how the principals responded Mm -hmm. to that one of when it was your youngest i i just like it that that to me felt like a full circle moment you know very much just a new chapter a new a new response and that that's refreshing to hear amazing amazing i don't know i don't back when we were in high school, I don't remember there being gay straight alliances. I don't remember. Certainly we weren't asking pronouns or, um, talking. I mean, it just was not talked about. And if anybody was gay, it was very rare and almost they had they. it was like, there was like secret codes. Like, um, as far as even the rainbow was, I felt like fairly a foreign thing. And then also like the purple Teletubby was like the sign of if you're, I mean, it was just the most bizarre little things back in the 90s. Yeah. And, and then even in the early 2000s, the right to marry was up in the air. And that didn't get legalized till well, you'll know what year. It was like
0: pretty 2013 difficult. federally. Yeah.
1: That, it felt like it took forever. But I remember in the early 2000s thinking, there's no way this is ever going to pass. Like this feels like the biggest hurdle ever. And and here we are. So, um, when it did, when, how, how soon after it became legal in Minnesota, did you get married?
0: So we actually didn't think it would happen for a while. And so in 2012, we ended up having um the what we call our wedding and the date that we celebrate um we ended up having a wedding on top of Spirit Mountain in Duluth um peak of the fall colors um really cold day unfortunately but it was beautiful um and we had you know there was I think we had 140 um friends and family and and it was amazing and yet it didn't mean anything legally It didn't change anything as far as our our rights or um, our responsibilities to each other. And so, um, but we we, we had friends who went out of state and went to a state where it was legal and then came back here. And our whole thing was, well, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, you have a piece of paper from Iowa or from um, Maine or from another state, but it's not legal here where you live. Mm -hmm. And it's not legal federally. So we had decided we will wait till it's legal on the federal level. Well, in 2012, as you know, was also a huge year for um, marriage here because they had put it on the ballot to to ban gay marriage in the constitution. And Minnesota was the first state to successfully fight and and win that battle as far as stopping that from happening. And honestly, I was shocked. I really thought that it would pass. Um, And not only that, but then the next year, Minnesota legalized marriage before it happened federally. So the the anniversary just came up on my Facebook of me at the Capitol on the day that it passed and, and how ecstatic we were that, you know, Minnesota passed marriage equality. They went from one year trying to put in the constitution to stop it from ever happening to the next year voting it into law. And then within three months, two months from then, it was the Supreme Court ruled that it had to be recognized federally and that every state had to recognize um, same-sex marriage. And it was a huge deal, like it, it it, it didn't seem possible. Well then, because we weren't legally married, because we didn't, so all of our friends who went out of state and got this for paper, all they have to do is now register in Minnesota and they're married. They didn't have to do anything, right? we had to go and get legally married because we weren't. And so that fall, um, we ended up having a backyard wedding ceremony because my both of our moms said, you still have to have a ceremony. We're like, but we already did. <laughs> Why would and they said, this is, this is the big deal. This is the legal one. This is, you're gonna get a piece of paper that says you're married. And so we had a much smaller backyard um, ceremony. It was actually amazing. We had one of my friends who's a Native American spiritualist do a native American wedding ceremony. And just cause we wanted it to be very different than the one we'd had. Um, and so there was like smudging of rings and there was a native American blessing and it was beautiful. And we had famous Dave's um, cater it which was um, a, another ode to a native American owned business. Um, and so, you know, it was it was great. And it was something that as a kid I could never have dreamed of. You know, like I dreamed of growing up and finding somebody to love. But I don't think I had. I couldn't. I couldn't even fathomed marrying somebody legally and having children. Like it just. It probably was not something that was in my reality because, like you said, it just wasn't something that was talked about much. When it was, it was whispered about. It was joked about. Um, and people never came out. I mean, I came out at eleven in nineteen eighty six. That was unheard of. Nobody ever did that. And now it's not that uncommon for 11 year olds to come up, right? I mean, we've come a long way in that period of time as far as as um, as far as the awareness, the visibility, but it's sad because we're still sitting here in 2021. And now the issue that everybody seems to be obsessed with is transgender people, bathrooms and sports. There are so few, I think there that um, they looked at it. There's like eight known cases of transgender kids playing sports of the gender that they are um, identifying as in the country. And yet this is the biggest issue that the, the Republicans wanna hang their hat on right now and it makes no sense. But the, you know, it just shows there's always gonna be a scapegoat when it comes to these things, whether it be women, whether it be um, you know a specific race, whether it be LGBT. Um, and this is unfortunately the time because I think they've lost the battle on same-sex marriage. They've lost the battle on people accepting gay and lesbian people but there's still this unfamiliarity and this fear that they can stoke up around transgender people that they do. Right. So,
1: yeah. It's um, so harmful. So embarrassing. The the way that they, like you said, just kind of grasping, okay, who's left? Like who, like they are the bullies. They are Mm -hmm. the bullies all grown up and who haven't grown up essentially maturity wise and Humanity-wise, it's it's terrible. What life looks good for you now? You're a happy homeowner, getting your real estate license. Yep. And full-time dad.
0: Yep. And I'll be going back to school in the fall to get my master's in social work, um, awesome. which will be really kind of a. I think I've always been a social worker. I've just done it in many different forms, and now. Um, after my experience being um, adopting through foster care and then taking in some kids on an emergency basis, realizing that our system is broken and the only hope that kids really have is getting somebody who can help navigate a broken system and take care of them and um, realizing that I want to be that person. I mean, that was a huge thing for me going, I, it's not fair that these kids basically get, the, 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 you know, get screwed in a system that is failing them. And that, um, you know, our boys had an amazing social worker, we could not believe how easy and great of an experience. And I thought, Oh, that must be how all social workers are, and how the and systems must all work. And it wasn't until we ended up doing foster care through Hennepin County, and through the through a tribe in Minnesota that we went, the system is completely broken, and the kids are the ones that are suffering. And so that really kind of forced me to, you know, i worked on some issues to get some um, change is done, I've worked on some issues um, with foster advocates, an organization here in Minnesota, but I realized that this is really personal to me at this point, this is my passion. Bo, I'd come home from working at a bank and, and Bo said, you know, you never talk about work the way you talk about, you know, being the, the kids in our home, or advocating for these kids that were our previous foster kids, who in my mind are still my kids. Like two of them are in a process of being adopted. One I'm hoping just got matched for adoption, um, but they're still part of me. Like I will never they, I will never n- not feel that or wanna be connected to them, but it just tells me I'm, there's more to this. I need to, to pursue this. And so that's what I'm doing this fall.
1: Good for you. We have lots of, it, I feel like systems is like a buzzword lately, you know, whether it's education, okay. government, um, policing, healthcare, all that, I don't know, what is missing? Like what is, like the focus, where do we need to spend energy and time and when it comes to systems?
0: If I had one thing and I wouldn't even say it's systems, it's the, we've gotten to this point because we have quit teaching our kids about empathy. And I don't mean that individually, I mean that as a as a society. Empathy is something that we are hugely lacking in. Um, and I would say that specifically one party in this country, the Republican party, they talk so much about personal responsibility and yet they're not willing to, I mean, and, and about individuals doing the right thing, but when it comes to society, we're not doing the right thing. We're failing our, our kids our, in education in general, we're failing kids that are in the foster system who have already had a tough life and now they're having a tough life in a system that really isn't set up for their success. We're failing our our citizens that are people of color because of institutional racism, um, bias, all of these things. And I think that if we, if I had one dream, if I had one wish that we could do, it would be having empathy be a required thing to teach kids because it is a skill, it is not something, I think some people are more empathetic than others just naturally, but I think that you can teach the skill of empathy and there's been studies that prove this, there was a great study that was done in Canada that proved this um, and its impact on bullying, which makes perfect sense because if you have to think about how somebody, how your actions affect other people, you're going to do things differently, and I think if our government had to do the same thing, if our schools, if our health systems, but it's such a we are such an individualized, selfish society that is where we're failing. That's my interpretation of things. Um, you know, bureaucracies have their own challenges, and I get that, but it comes down to the fact that we don't make decisions on the whole about, you know, thinking about how it's going to affect people, especially vulnerable people.
1: Boy, amen to that. Empathy and compassion. That is absolutely a missing piece. Amazing. Yeah, I think you named it. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for your story. And I can't wait to share it. And
0: awesome. I'm well, thank you. Really and I look forward to uh our continued friendship. And <laughs> um, you know, it's it's been great getting to know you. So I, I'm excited about that. So oh, thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I will Is your movie viewable from your website? Like, what is the best way to see your movie?
0: Best way to see my movie is on Vimeo or YouTube. Um, It is not supposed to be there, but the Southern Poverty Law Center decided a long time ago they were going to stop fighting it. Um, but you can also order my movie from Tolerance.org for free, okay. provided you're using it for an educational purposes. You can also apparently buy it from different places, even though they give it away. There are people selling it on um, on Amazon in different places. If you wanted to purchase it and you didn't have an educational reason to get it, you could do that. But um, it's free, Tolerance.org, to order for free. Or if you want to just watch it on Vimeo or YouTube, it's on both of those. Excellent.
1: Thank you. I'm just crazy happy for you, and I'm, I'm glad you've landed here. I'm glad you're still with us, and I'm glad that justice was done and that things are changing. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 16 of Kate Had Me Meet. I am eternally grateful that you took the time to hear Jamie's story and I would so value your thoughts on it your feedback and especially if you would just share with anybody you know on your social feeds I just think the more people who can hear his message the better thank you again for listening and may you be better and richer for it